Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. We're grateful that you have come to join us for worship this morning, and it's good to see all of you who are in the house, and those of you who I can't see who are worshiping with us online, I'm glad to have all of you joining us this morning as well. We are certainly glad that we can come to the house of the Lord to serve Him and to worship Him together. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them? Turn with me once again to the book of Habakkuk and to chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. We're nearing the end of our study in this book, this little book in the Minor Prophets. Uh, and, and, and I hasten to add that he, he is not a minor prophet because the message that he communicates is minor or, or in some way uh, diminutive in any way. No, the, the, the reason that he's considered to be a minor prophet is because his book is short. And because the book is short, then we only have about six sermons that we're going to be in. And today is our fifth one. Uh, Lord willing, we'll come back and, and we'll finalize it up next week. But particularly as we, as we look at chapter 3 this morning, I think it'll be familiar to you as you kind of look at the structure of it. It's going to look very familiar to the Psalms that we were studying back this past fall because, well, chapter 3 is a psalm. It's a song that was meant to be sung. And we know that because of a few different indicators that we see through the text the first one is the very first line that you see there at the beginning of the chapter. It, it says there, it says, it's a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigianoth. And, and while I would just tell you that's a really fun word to say, you ought to try it and use that this afternoon on, some, on your friends and neighbors, see if they understand it. No one knows what Shigianoth means, but they do believe that it is some sort of a, a, a musical terminology in some ways. It was used in some way to... To, to direct a choir or something along that line. If you also just kind of look at the, the chapter 3, you'll see off to the side, many of your versions, you'll see the, the three times that the, the word Selah is used. That's also indicative of the Psalms. You'll see that quite regularly. Uh, it's a, it's a, uh, most believe that that too is a musical term meant to pause. And so you'll see about three of those in the passage. But the real, the real thing that, that, that nails it home, that this is a song, is the very last phrase that you come across at the end of chapter 3. You'll notice there it says, It's to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. And, and that's just like a lot of the, the, the superscriptions that appear on the front of all the psalms, many of the psalms of David and many of the others there, that that tells us that this is a song that was intended to be sung. And so Habakkuk chapter 3 is that song, and it's really made up of three different stanzas, if you will, or three different parts. The first one is, it says a prayer request. Uh, we see there in, the, in verse 2, but then you see that there will be followed with it. Is this me that's doing that? What am I doing? We don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing. I never know what I'm doing. All of you online, just hang with us for a second. Is it my shirt you think that is doing that? Probably my belt pack that's going bad. Y'all just hang on. We're going to see if we can figure this thing out. All right, let's see. Let's see how we can rock and, rock and roll with that for just a little bit. So, so this song is composed of three different parts. It, it, it starts with a prayer request. Then from there is a theophany or a vision of God that, 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 that Habakkuk is able to acquire. And then from there we have a testimonial or a declaration of Habakkuk's faith. All of that is, is comprised in this song of Habakkuk chapter 3. And here's what I want you to see right up front. There is a change in the prophet when we get to chapter 3. 
He's a completely different dude than what we come across in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he's questioning God about everything. He's accusing God. He's accused God of being idle. He's accused God of being indifferent to the, to the lawlessness of his own nation. And then when God told him that he had a plan, that he was going to, to bring the Chaldeans in to be his means of punishing his own nation, Habakkuk had a problem with that. And he wanted to know, well, how can you do that? And how long is this going to occur? And, and how long will you allow this to continue to go on? And so Habakkuk, in chapter 1, is one who's really questioning God, and he's arguing with God. God answers Habakkuk again in chapter 2, and I won't go back and, and rehearse all of that, but what chapter 2 tells us is that God always has a plan. God does not come into something and wondering what is he going to do, scratching his head, trying to figure out what's going to come next. No, God had a plan, and we read that plan and how it occurs in chapter 2, and it tells us that God is going to use the, the Chaldeans to not only judge his own nation of, of the Judah, the people that are there, but that God himself will judge the Babylonians in their wickedness and in their sin. But then you come to that very last verse of chapter 2. I didn't spend much time on it last week. I just want to read it to you. Verse 20 reads this way, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. I believe there are a couple of loads of freight that are being borne by that verse. And, and the first one is just in the immediate context. Back in verses 18 and 19, there's a description of how the Chaldeans were the ones that created their own idols. They took wood and metal and formed their own gods, and then they, they started worshiping those gods. Those inanimate things, they began to worship them, and they began to tell them, look, tell us what to do, teach us. And those inanimate objects had no ability to do that. And so in contrast to that, we read here, but God sits in His holy temple. All the earth should keep silence before him. In other words, you don't point your finger to that God and say, teach me and tell me. God will teach us and he will tell us in his time that he is the living God. He's not, he's not a, a, a dead, lifeless God. He's the living God. And so there's a, there's a contrast that's there. But, but I think there's an even a, another way that we should understand that verse. And that is, is that, ver that, that verse 20 there not only contrasts the false faith and false gods of the Chaldeans, with, with true faith in the living God, but it also accounts for why I think you see such a change in the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 3. You see, when we get to chapter 3, what we realize is that all the questions that Habakkuk had are gone. All the arguing with God has ceased. All the complaints about what God was doing and how he was working, you don't read about them there. What has replaced all of that, as we're going to see, is prayer and, and awe and reverence and fear and joy. All of that comes in these, this beautiful, beautiful song that we read about in Habakkuk chapter 3. A song, as I have entitled it, of remembrance, faith, and joy. So let's get to it. Let's read it this morning. We begin reading there in verse 1. Again, we read that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light, and 
He had rays flashing from his hand, and there, there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence, and fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea? that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation. Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah. You divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their inhabitation. And the light of your arrows, they went at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nation in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. Selah. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of the great waters. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Now, verses 17 through 19, this is the reason that I wanted to preach through Habakkuk, these verses. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this word. Thank you for the encouragement that it brings to our hearts. Now, I pray that you would use it to bring conviction to our hearts as well. Conviction of our own sin, but conviction of you, who you are. And help us to trust in you. Help us to, help us to lay hold of that which you have offered to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is my prayer, and I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So this is a song. This is a song that we have recorded for us here. And as I mentioned, it has three stanzas, three parts, three verses. We find the first one there in verse 2. I've given it this heading just to kind of help us think through it and hang our thoughts on as we work our way through it. You'll find it there. The first one is this. It is a request for God to repeat and remember. A request for God to repeat and remember. The first verse is a, words of verse 2. 
Habakkuk in the New King James, we read this. It says that, that I have heard your speech and was afraid. And, and, and from that perspective, we know that, that Habakkuk has heard everything that God has replied to him, not only in chapter 1 about what he intends to do with the Chaldeans, but in chapter 2, how the, 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 the trial and the, the tribulation that they will go through as the, as the Chaldeans come through will be met with God's punishment of the Chaldeans as well. And so Habakkuk is saying, I have heard what you have said, and it has caused me to be afraid. The ESV, if you're reading in it, though, you'll read that, that translates the verse this way. Oh, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear. The NIV states it similarly. It says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Here's what we can really come to understand. Habakkuk not only had heard what God had said directly to him, but he had heard others who had told him all the things that God had done long before Habakkuk was alive, long before he found himself in the situation he did. Habakkuk had heard about how God had spoken words and, and the, the world had been created. Habakkuk knew that God had that kind of power and that kind of authority. He knew that God had, had delivered that Noah and, and his family were delivered from the flood, that God had sent the flood upon the earth to judge the earth, but that a remnant was saved through the ark and that Noah and his family were delivered. Habakkuk had heard about that. He had heard about Israel, how they had been imprisoned and enslaved in the land of Egypt, but that God in his mercy and in his grace had delivered them out of the hands of Pharaoh and into the freedom. Habakkuk had heard of all of these works, all the miraculous things that God had done on behalf of his people and how he had delivered them. And he says, I heard that and I was afraid. I was awestruck. I was, I was in awe of all that you do. Your mighty power is amazing when I consider it. Now here, that, that remembrance and that recollection on behalf of this prophet causes him to make this request that he makes in verse 2, a request that he asked God to repeat those mighty acts again in the midst of the years. Literally, he's saying, in my days, in my life, God, would you do it again? Would, would you repeat that, that power that you showed in the past? Would you do it again in my time, in my life? Show your power, show your glory, show your majesty, show your might in my day like you have shown it in days gone by. That's the first part of the request there that we read in verse 2. Then there's the second part of the request, and that is this. In wrath, remember mercy. In other words, Lord, I accept the fact that your judgment is coming upon your people. I'm not arguing with you anymore. I'm not fighting against you anymore. You've made your plan and your will very clear to me. But Lord, please, in your justified wrath against sin, please remember mercy. Because if not, then we will be completely wiped out. So this is the song that begins. This is this, it begins with this prayer request. God, I know that you're all-powerful and I know that you've done mighty and miraculous things. Repeat that again. Save us. Make a way for your people to be saved again like you have done before. Lord, I know we deserve your wrath, but please be merciful to us because you are our only hope. I want us to focus on that last part for just a second. I want you to see just how absolutely important that prayer is. 
It's not only for Habakkuk, it's not only important for him to pray this prayer on behalf of the people of Judah. This is an important prayer that you and I ought to pray on behalf of ourselves. You see, as I've explained this many times, that grace and mercy go hand in hand. Grace is what God gives to us that we do not deserve. Grace is a gift, and by definition, a gift is something that you give to someone as an act of love. It's not something that they have earned. To earn something means that you've done something to deserve it. That's where mercy comes in. Mercy is when God withholds something from us that we do deserve. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. A wage is something that you pay to someone who has done something to earn it. And you can earn something good and you can earn something bad. Sin earns us God's wrath. And mercy is when God withholds His wrath from us. You and I cannot be saved apart from God's act of grace in gifting us with love that we do not deserve and from Him withholding from us that which we do deserve, which is His wrath. We are saved by grace and mercy working in our lives. The Bible tells us what we already know. That is, all of us are sinners. Every last one of us are sinners. And what that means is that we rightfully and justly deserve God's eternal wrath against our sin. We have earned that. It is what we are owed. It is our wage. But God shows mercy to us, withholding it. He restrains Himself. And every one of us in this room have benefited from the mercy of God. And here's how I know that. Because if we were to have received that which we have justly earned, every one of us would be suffering God's eternal wrath in hell this morning. The fact that we're not there is a testimony to the fact that God has demonstrated mercy to us. Do you remember the parable that we're told about in Luke chapter 18? In Luke 18, we're told Jesus tells a parable about a a tax collector and a Pharisee. Both of them go to the temple to pray. The Pharisee goes there and when he prays, he prays loud and he throws his voice in the deepest way he can and he prays a long flowing prayer in which he brags on himself for all the things that he has done and he's so grateful that he is not like all these worst sinners, like this, this pitiful tax collector who is over here. The tax collector, on the other hand, When he prays, he won't even lift his head. He beats his chest. He cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Brothers and sisters, that's the prayer Habakkuk prayed. In your wrath, show mercy. Remember mercy. Mercy to me, a sinner. How can God do that? Have you ever thought about how God can show mercy to someone who deserves His wrath? How can God show mercy to sinners like you and me? Well, He can do that only if He displays His might and only if He displays His power. If He shows His glory, if He somehow comes on the scene and delivers and saves us just like He delivered and saved Noah and his family on the ark, just like He delivered and saved the Israelites from the hand of the oppressive hand of Pharaoh in Egypt. Habakkuk recognized that. He knew that Judah would only be spared if God did something miraculous and magnificent. 
if he delivered them, and if he saved them. And that's why he prays. Revive your work. Repeat your deeds and make them known in our day. That should be our prayer as well. I want you to know, Lord, in our day, in our time, repeat those mighty acts and deliver us and show us your mercy. Listen, when, when we as Christians see all that's going on around us, when we see the oppression that is taking place, the thorough lack of care and the thorough lack of concern for the Lord and for His Word. When, when holding to Christian values and biblical teaching is tossed aside as something that is antiquated and even worse, something that is to be reviled because it, it is said to be bigoted and hateful. When, when all of those things begin to come, we can know that God will show judgment. God will deal justly with that. I believe He's even doing that as we speak. I think right now in our world we are seeing the hand of God's judgment upon it. And I know from what Scripture teaches that He will ultimately do that. He will ultimately bring judgment upon the earth and upon all those who resist and who oppose Him. But that does not mean that we cannot pray that God will be merciful. It does not mean that we should, we should just go past it and not recognize that, that we, our prayer should be that of the prophets here. In your wrath, Lord, remember mercy. We know that you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So as you, as you demonstrate your justice, God, please be merciful, because if you are not, we will have no hope. I believe that such a prayer, as a backup praise here, is a model prayer of desperation. It is a prayer that recognizes that God is our only hope and He is our only help. And to that end, let me point out to you that God is a just God. In other words, for Him to be holy, He must also be just. God cannot and He will not wink at sin as if, as if it doesn't matter. He will not overlook it as if it never occurred. No, for God to be holy, sin must be punished. That's why Jesus Christ came. He came to preach a message of salvation, a message of deliverance to those who were bound in sin, and the culmination of that message came in the fact that He Himself went to Calvary to bear the punishment of sinners just like you and just like me. God the Father poured out His unmitigated and His undiluted wrath upon His own Son on Calvary's cross so that you and I might be freed from our justly deserved punishment and guilt. And therefore, our only hope for mercy comes because of the mighty and powerful work of what Jesus Christ has done for us. The Bible tells us that there is only one name given among men under heaven by which we can be saved, and that is Jesus Christ our risen Savior. So there in verse 2, we read of Habakkuk's request for God to repeat the mighty acts of old and to remember in wrath to show mercy. And in this verse, we are pointed to the ultimate mighty act that God has done that makes that mercy possible. It points to the fact that Jesus Christ died for us. And in this verse, we're also shown how we should pray for ourselves and for our family and for our friends and our country and our world that we would become desperate to see God do a great work of revival and renewal in our hearts and in the hearts of our, our neighbors and in the hearts of our land, that, God, you would do that 
even in our world today. That's the first stanza of Habakkuk's song. It's a request to repeat and remember. Notice the next stanza. It begins in verse 3 and works its way down through verse 15. And there we find a vision of God who vanquishes his enemies and victoriously saves his people. Verses 3 through 15 really comprises what is referred to as a theophany. And Theophany is just a fancy word of saying it's a vision of God. And God provides this vision to Habakkuk as a result of the prayer that Habakkuk prays. And it is a vision of God who is depicted as one who vanquishes his enemies and victoriously saves his people. We could say this, it is a God who comes and a God who conquers and a God who comforts. Now, the interesting thing about this passage linguistically is that it's translated for us in our modern versions as as something occurring in the past tense. You'll notice that all the verbs there pretty much talk about something that God did in the past. And the imagery points us to things that God has done in the past. But, But... This is a fresh vision that God gives Habakkuk in his present. And it is an answer to the prayer that he's asking for something to be done for him in the future. So when you've got the past and the present and the future all put together in something, that tends to sort of create trouble for scholars, which is why they come up with a a title for this kind of language. They call it the prophetic perfect and, and, and we don't use a lot of that in our English language, but, but maybe, maybe I could demonstrate it how it's used this way. If, if somebody comes and asks me to do something, better yet, if my wife comes and asks me to do something, if she says, Craig, I would like for you to take the trash out. Now, I can say to her, sure, honey, I'll do that. I'll take care of that for you. Now, that's speaking prophetically as saying that I will do something. But I could look at her and give her this answer that will give her absolute certainty that I will do exactly what she asked. I can look at her and say, honey, it's done. It's done. You want me to take out the trash? It's done. It's like money in the bank. Now, have I done it yet? No. But what does she think? Craig's going to take care of it. Craig's going to do it because he's speaking to me as if it's already occurred. That's the vision that you get here from verses 3 through verse 15. It's, It's spoken to us in the past tense, but it's a prophetic perfect. It's telling us this is what's going to happen, and it is so assured, you can be assured it's going to occur. It's going to happen. And here's why I think that's important for us to recognize, because Ray Pritchard has put it this way. He says, knowing that his nation faces imminent judgment, Habakkuk prays, Lord, do something. The vision is God's answer. It's as if God says, Habakkuk, you've forgotten who I am. So let me show you who I am. Because if you understand who I am, you're going to be able to sleep at night because you're going to know that I'm going to take care of all of it. It's done. Now, I'm going to let you go back and read all of this again. I'm not going to read it all for you and unpack it all for you. You've got to do some homework too. But here's the thing. Verses 3 through 7 really present a poetic picture of God's coming. His He's glorious like the sunrise. If you've ever been out there and you've, you've been out there in the dark and you've just waited for that first little sliver and you can begin to see it and it's gray and then it just gets brighter and eventually you can't stand to say it, see it any longer because it comes up and it's so bright. That's the way that God comes. He comes like that with that brightness and he comes with lightning in his hands. 
And He's powerful. He shakes the earth. The nations tremble. He brings mountains low and hills fall down. Listen, if God can cause nature to do things like that, human beings tremble before Him because we have no other option. And then it states that His ways are everlasting, that He marches on forever. That means that nothing human, nothing, nothing natural, nothing supernatural can stand against God. That's who He is. That's verses 3 through 7. And then in verses 8 through 15, commentators note the specific historical references that continue to bubble up there. For example, many note that the, the mentions of rivers there in verses 8, 9 and 10, that alludes to when God turned the Nile River into blood and when, when He parted the, the Jordan so that the Israelites could cross into the promised land. The sun that stands still in verse 11 really harkens back to the Israelites and their victory that they had at Gibeon. The mention of the sea in verse 15 brings to mind the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. But also notice the verbs in verses 12 through 13. I tried to highlight them as I was reading it earlier. Listen, you marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed. You struck the head from the house of the wicked, laying bare from foundation to neck. I want you to know those are powerful images. What we read about there is not a mamby-pamby God. That's a God that's got fight in him. That's a God that's got backbone. That's a God that's willing to march forth into battle and, and to take the battle to the people, to those who are his enemies. This God is not only one who comes, he's a God who conquers. He marches forth into battle. And that vision was intended to comfort Habakkuk. It ought to comfort you and I as well. Because it tells us that God rages in His righteous wrath in order to deliver and in order to save His people. No weapon formed against the Lord will prosper. Just as He defeated all of Israel's foes in the past and He delivered them by His might and by His power, He will do that again. Habakkuk could count on that. You and I can count on it too. God's vision that He gave to Habakkuk was intended to assure the prophet that the Lord God would bring future restoration just as He had brought past deliverance. Brothers and sisters, you and I should be encouraged by that same message in our day. God is still on His throne, and He is still mighty to save, and He will come, and He will, just as I sang in that song earlier, He will break the chains that bind us. He will deliver us. We can be assured of it. So the first stanza of Habakkuk's song was a request for God to repeat and remember. The second is that it is a vision of the Lord who vanquishes His enemies and victoriously saves His people. That brings us to the last stanza which I have identified this way. It is a testimony that declares, though I tremble, I will trust. It's a testimony that declares, though I tremble, I will trust. I'm only going to touch on the final section briefly because the Lord willing, my, my intent is to come back and and preach from it next week. But I just want you to notice, notice verse 16. The ESV translates it this way. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He's saying, look, I'm scared to death about what's coming. 
I'm trembling. My legs are trembling. My, my lips are trembling. My rottenness is entering my bones. I don't even have the ability to stand up underneath this because I know what's coming. Nevertheless, even though I tremble, I will trust. I will trust in God. He knew that no matter what happened, the Babylonians would not have the last word. They were just a tool in God's hand to discipline His people, to bring them to repentance. God had come to the rescue of His people in the past when they faced certain death, and He was confident that God would come to the rescue of His people in the present when they faced certain death at the hands of the Babylonians. And so He says, I will quietly wait for the day of destruction to come upon them. And then you come to verses 17 through 19, which are perhaps the best known. And the reason, as I said, reason that I wanted to preach through Habakkuk was so I could get to these last verses. So I had to start in chapter 1 to get here. And I've loved it. But understand that these verses are among the most beautiful and they are among the most comforting verses that you will find in Scripture. Quite frankly, these verses seem to be more relevant than ever in the days that we're facing. They are an unequivocal statement of faith in God despite the circumstances. When things appear to be about as bad as they can possibly be, when the trees don't bud, when the crops don't ripen, when livestock are all dead. One has put it this way. There's a modern paraphrase of it. Though the cupboard be bare, the bills coming due, my car repossessed, a pink slip in my hand, and no jobs in town. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. This is my paraphrase. When everything that can go wrong has gone wrong, and when the darkness has overwhelmed me, I will nevertheless trust in God my Savior and rejoice in the salvation that he has gifted to me. He will lift my head and he will plant my feet. Now, I want to be clear. This is not a just grit your teeth and bear it kind of faith. This is, this is not something that ignores the reality of the difficulties that, they, that Habakkuk was facing or that you and I might face. That's not what this is. Rather, I believe this is a true definition of what joy is. As one has stated this this way, the bottom line is not circumstances. The bottom line is God. He is our source of confidence and strength. He is the only rock upon which we can rely. And that brings me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. Though we may face fearful and troubling circumstances, we can rejoice in renewed faith when we remember who our God is the mercy He has shown us, and all that He has done to save us. Here's what I know. All of us are facing difficult and uncertain times. From the coronavirus issue to the results of living in a fragmented society to concerns about the direction that our country is headed to the threats that we face from other nations who are hostile to our own. All of us in this room face those kind of big-time problems. But then many of us are facing more individual kind of issues in our own life. There are those of you out there who are just like me that are dealing with the grief that comes with the loss of a loved one. There are others of you out there who are facing significant health issues and the, promise, uh, the prognosis is not promising. I know some 
moms and dads right now that are facing some very difficult issues with their children because their children have chosen to make some horrible decisions and they're beginning to pay for those decisions. There are those who are facing financial uncertainty because they've lost jobs. And there are those who have challenging decisions to make and quite frankly, they've lost sleep because they don't know what to do. There are all kinds of circumstances and the list could go on and on and on and it does. Brothers and sisters, we must recognize that we will never live in a completely safe and in a completely happy and in a completely secure world. Jesus himself tells us in John 16 verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation. He speaks that to his disciples. What that means is that Christians, we don't get a free pass on that. In fact, just as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. What, what must we do then? In light of that reality, what must our attitude be? Well, we can be like Habakkuk and we can question God and we can throw our, our arguments to Him and we can complain against Him about why He would allow this happen and how long is He going to allow it to occur. But eventually we will come back to the fact that God is sovereign and He sits on His throne and let all nations be silenced before Him. And when we contemplate the truth of that reality, of His supreme glory and of His supreme authority, then all of our complaints and all of our questions will quit. And then like Habakkuk, we can begin to sing. And when we sing, we can begin with a prayer request. We can begin by asking God to show His glory and His might and His power. Just as He has written them in His book, He can show it again. Do it again, Lord. Do it in our day. In our day, renew us. Revive us again, Lord, just like You did before. Do it again. And then we can ask Him to be merciful to us. God, we know that we're, we're sinful and we know that we deserve Your wrath, but in Your wrath, remember Your mercy. And then we can take time to remember all of the moments in our lives when God moved in a mighty way, when God, when God parted that sea from us, when He brought that mountain into, and, and laid it low in our lives, when He came along and miraculously delivered us from the hand of our enemy. We can recall the mighty works of a mighty God who worked mightily on our behalf. And then we can recall the fact that He has saved us he has granted to us that which we do not deserve and could never earn by sending His Son to die in our place. And we could remind us that Jesus Christ is the Lord's anointed and that He suffered and that He died on the cross and that God raised Him from the dead so that we might be saved. And then we can remind ourselves that our salvation is secure and that it can never be taken away for us and that it was something that we can guarantee to be counted upon. 1 Peter 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you. Brothers and sisters, that is what we have in store for us. It is done. It's money in the bank. Rather than that, it's not money. It's God in the bank for us. As the last part of that song states, our joy and our hope it's not tied to our circumstances. 
It's tied to God. It's tied to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why we can face fearful and troubling circumstances and rejoice in a renewed faith. Because we remember who God is. We remember the mercy He's shown us. And we remember all the things that He has done to save us. When we do that, we can join in that everlasting song of remembrance, faith, and joy. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. And we thank you for how you reveal yourself to us in the midst of sometimes incredible pain and suffering. Habakkuk understood that, and yet he sang. I pray that we'll sing too. Doesn't mean that we won't cry. Doesn't mean that we won't suffer loss. Just simply means that our confidence and our faith is in you, who's greater than anything that we face in this life, and who is told us by demonstrating what he's done, what you've done through Christ on the cross and through the empty tomb, we know that you will fight our battles for us and our confidence and our faith is in you. Lord, it's my prayer if there's someone in this room that doesn't have that confidence. They don't know you. They've never trusted in you. They've never trusted in Jesus Christ. But today would be the day that they would place their faith in you, the crucified and risen Savior. Pray that you would do that for your glory and for your honor. In Christ's name, amen.